Well, this is a 12-week course, and we're going through a book by John MacArthur, Fundamentals of the Faith. Uh, I think everyone's probably been in here before for some of them, but that's kind of the outline that we're using, at least for the lessons. I'm deviating quite a bit as far as how I'm handling it. The stapled outline that you have uh, comes from this book, and I'm using that more as a homework assignment. So I'm saying after you leave here, as you go through the week, uh, go ahead and fill out those blanks. It'll reinforce what we're going to go through uh, in the class. What I'm going to do is use the one-page outline, front and back, uh, which I've put together. It follows mainly the flow of what MacArthur's doing, but uh, it will be more detailed in some areas, and then uh, in others I won't go as deep, maybe, even as his outline does. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're seven lessons deep in the series, and so we're going to be talking about uh, the Holy Spirit And particularly from the title of the lesson, we're going to be talking about the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right, let me introduce it tonight. I want to read a small excerpt from our Constitution, which describes our position on the Holy Spirit. We believe that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead, being of the same substance, fully equal in perfection, attributes, and deity, yet they are distinct from one another and unique as to role and office. So tonight we're going to take a look at scriptures that would support that statement. Now the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, has been both overemphasized and underemphasized through the history of the church. Uh, Today, the extremes go, for example, from the Jehovah's Witnesses, who would deny the deity of Christ and would claim that he is the active force of God in the world. Okay, It goes all the way from that, denying his personhood, to more of the modern Pentecostal movement uh, that emphasizes the baptism of the Spirit like that's a second work of grace that you get after salvation. And that's in order to endue the believer then with real power, and it promotes uh, returning to experiencing all the miraculous gifts that were in the New Testament church. The most important thing probably that I'll tell you tonight is this. The Holy Spirit is not there to elevate himself. That's not his role in the Trinity. But instead, what he does is point people to Christ and have them seek him. Uh, If you would, turn to John chapter 16, and we'll take a look at verses 13 and 14. John 16, 13 and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You can see so clearly from those two verses, uh, as Christ was describing the coming spirit after he would be leaving the disciples, that the Spirit would testify of him. It's just so important to understand this uh, in light of the distortion that we get from a number of different so-called Christian circles today. Let me read you a quote from uh, a good author. I think uh, Pastor Farrell mentioned him a couple of times in this morning's sermon. He was quoting him in other passages. This is from uh, David Lloyd-Jones. The Spirit does not glorify himself. He glorifies the Son. This is, to me, one of the most amazing and remarkable things about the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems to hide himself and to conceal himself. He is always, as it were, putting the focus on the Son. And that is why I believe 
And I believe profoundly that the best test of all as to whether we've received the Spirit is to ask ourselves, what do we think of and what do we know about the Son? Is the Son real to us? That's the work of the Spirit. He is glorified indirectly. He's always pointing us to the Son. And so, you see how easily we go astray and become heretical if we concentrate overmuch and in an unscriptural manner upon the Spirit himself. Yes, we must realize that he dwells within us, but his work in dwelling within us is to glorify the Son and to bring to us that blessed knowledge of the Son and his wondrous love to us. It is he who strengthens us with might in the inner man that we may know this love, this love of Christ. Puts that so well. If you take a look at your outline, uh, the one-page outline, at the very top you'll see a verse. That's actually the memory verse that MacArthur has from this lesson, but I would like to use it as well. John fourteen sixteen. There it reads, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. The idea of a helper there, you've probably heard some of these other terms. Uh, Helper is also translated comforter. Uh, It's also translated intercessor, and it's translated advocate. Now, a couple of times that word is used of Christ but it would apply here to the Spirit as well. He is our helper, our comforter, our intercessor, our advocate. The word literally means one called alongside to encourage. So we're going to take a look at this one that uh, the Lord has given to believers to encourage them in their walk. So the first thing you'll see on your outline is that we want to talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses who describe him as a force, something inanimate, not real, not actually a person, we believe the opposite. So let's take a look at this verse here in John. We'll be using the screen most of the time tonight. You can turn to them. All these references tonight are coming from the ESV, but you're welcome to look if you have a different translation in your Bible. Uh, Here the Lord says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Greek language sometimes can be a little bit confusing. It has three genders, not just two. You have male, female, and what's called neuter. And The word spirit, the noun spirit, is actually neuter. And so that leads to some confusion once in a while. That may be one of the reasons why the original King James talked about the spirit at one point in Romans as an it. And obviously that's poor at that point since he's a person. But while that's true, while the noun is neuter, every time a pronoun is inserted for that noun, it's masculine. And so you see that he has personality from that point. Also, if you go back to your student outline, that verse at the top, I want you to notice there, Jesus speaks of another helper. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, we're not going to go Greek crazy. This is about all the Greek we're going to do tonight. But... It turns out that in the Greek, there's a couple of different words for another. One of these is the word alas, and that means another of the same kind, of the same nature. There's also a word heteros. If you've had some science, you may remember the prefix heteros, such as heterogeneous mixtures. Since I'm a chemist, I had to throw that in. Uh, That means another, but it means another of a different kind. Well, the scriptures are careful in this verse to use alas, because the Spirit is another helper of the same kind as our Lord. He's of the same nature. 
in fact, as we're going to study in just a moment, he is deity. So we recognize him as a person. You can see under there uh, point B, the Holy Spirit is a person because he has attributes of personality. He would have characteristics that we would associate with being a person. For instance, he possesses the ability to know and understand reality. He has a mind, as the outline says, and I've used Romans 8.27 to illustrate that. And he who searches hearts, the he there is the Father, he's searching hearts, he knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The mind, the Spirit has a mind, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Father understands what the Spirit is thinking. The Spirit has his own mind in that regard. We also find that uh, he knows and searches the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God because the Spirit has the ability to know and search the things of the Father. He is able to teach men, 1 Corinthians 2.13. Paul speaking, he says, we impart this, that is scripture, these books that he and other apostles are writing, we impart this, these scriptures, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, to those who are spiritual. We'll be looking at that later, recognizing that the Holy Spirit is responsible for the the creation of the scriptures as he uh, teaches and imparts these words to men. We also find that he imparts wisdom and counsel. These are all parts of showing he has a personality. Isaiah chapter 11. The first verse in Isaiah 11 talks about the branch which is a word to talk about Christ, okay? And so the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him, the Son. The Spirit's going to rest on the Son. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And you know very well that during Christ's earthly time, he was directed by the Spirit in his activities. He always obeyed the Father, but it was under the leading of the Spirit. Give you an illustration of that. What happened to Christ immediately after his baptism? What's the next event immediately after he's baptized? Rick? The temptation from the devil. And those verses say, and the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And of course, it doesn't mean he shoved him, but the Spirit directed him to go into the wilderness for that temptation. Christ submitted himself to the counsel and the wisdom of the Spirit. Secondly, we find that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, demonstrates personality through his emotions. We don't talk probably enough about God having emotions, any of the three members of the Trinity. But uh, indeed, the Spirit has the ability to experience emotion. First of all, he can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30. Paul commands those in Ephesus, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, How do we grieve him? How do we grieve the Spirit? Hmm? With our sin, yeah. I'm thinking of a particular passage, and I'm probably asking too much uh, because it's sitting in front of me. Quenching, quenching him is one way that you would grieve him. Uh, Paul said to the Thessalonians, quench not the spirit of God. Uh, Quench, of course, means to extinguish or to stifle a flame. In the case of our lives, it would be to stifle progressive sanctification. And that's interesting, that analogy, because the spirit is often presented in Scripture as a fire. That's a symbolic representation of the Spirit. Thus, you can compare such quenching 
to extinguishing a flame or to extinguish the spirit of God. So he can be grieved. He can be hurt in that respect. He can be outraged. All right. The spirit can get angry. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled and underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? That's a sobering thought. And you know what that passage goes on to say in just a verse or two? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so we see that the spirit can be outraged. And at that point, you don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. The Holy Spirit experiences joy. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit granting you joy. And then finally, under this heading, he loves. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by what means? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So all of these things represent him having emotion and therefore having personality. And then he has a will. The big word is volition, but he has a will. He possesses the ability to determine and act decisively. One thing he does, he wills, is that he's the one who distributes spiritual gifts to believers. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He is the one who distributes these gifts. Uh, He directs the activities of God's servants. It's his will that leads men as they serve him. Got a couple of them here. We'll talk about them one at a time. They're related but separate incidents. First of all, Acts 13, 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the church did not choose Saul and Barnabas. Neither did they volunteer for the mission. Instead, the Spirit sovereignly called them to missionary service. How the Holy Spirit communicated to the church isn't revealed there in Acts 13. I don't know. Perhaps he spoke through one of the other prophets. There were seven prophet teachers there at Antioch. Saul and Barnabas were two of them. Perhaps God communicated that through a prophet. I don't know. But the scripture says plainly the Holy Spirit somehow let those men know, I'm willing you into missionary service. Then in Acts 16, this is actually part of the second missionary trip, so it's Paul with Silas, but the same kind of thing. They didn't go wherever they wanted to, okay? They didn't wake up and say, I think we'll go over to Asia today. In fact, you see here, they couldn't. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They were retracing steps from the first missionary trip. Paul thought probably be wise at this point to turn due west, go into Asia, And it says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. The Holy Spirit drove them north. And as you know, it ended up at Troas, the Macedonian call, entrance into Europe, and the gospel spread that way. God told them through the Spirit, don't go there. Later, Paul spent a good lengthy time in Asia, but not at this point. The Holy Spirit always directing the activities. He has a will. And he expresses that to men. Then we find uh, that the uh, Holy Spirit has actions of personality. We find a number of things here. Uh, And why am I jumping ahead? Ah, because I was going to have you read these. Turn with me to uh, John 14, 26. We'll break up looking at the screen for a moment and turn. John 14, 26. 
And I better turn there because I don't have that written out. <coughs> he has the action of personality because he teaches. Oh, actually, we read this one earlier, didn't we? I'm sorry. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit is the believer's resident teacher. By illuminating God's word to our understanding, he grants the knowledge of God that leads to spiritual maturity. So he is a teacher. He guides. A true child of God has a life that's characterized by being led by the Spirit. No, I'm still ahead. Boy, guys, I'm sorry. That's coming, but not yet. He guides. Romans 8.14. Turn there. I must be colorblind. I've got all my verses highlighted in yellow or orange for reading or looking at the screen, and I can't even remember where I'm at. 8.14 of Romans. He guides. That's the emphasis of this verse. Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It says, all who are led by him. So he is our guide. All right, finally, we can go to Acts 8.29 on the screen. He commands and directs. Uh, This is an interesting story. This is actually toward the middle of it. The Spirit said to Philip, I'm just emphasizing the fact that the Holy Spirit's directing this. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. It's all very interesting. Philip, one of the seven, okay, of the group that eventually became called deacons, Philip uh, had to flee Jerusalem because of great persecution. And he went to Samaria. And we're going to talk about this again later in a different context. But he was having a great fruitful ministry in Samaria. And all of a sudden, he's directed to leave a fruitful ministry and to go down into the desert and to meet one guy. And the Holy Spirit has been preparing this one guy. He's riding along in his chariot, and he's been looking at Isaiah, and he's reading about the suffering servant. And he's curious, who is this that the scriptures are talking about? And it says here in 829, the Spirit said to Philip, after he sent him down here, now go over and join this chariot. The whole thing was orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Just a very interesting uh, story. Everything was set for this special encounter. He commands and he directs. And a verse that you probably know very well, he intercedes for the believer. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Notice that singular, not weaknesses, in our weakness. So what does that emphasize? Not, I've got this weakness, I've got that weakness, I've got that. I'm just weak, all right? The singular emphasizes the whole. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is the verse I was talking about earlier, and the point's not to bring out flaws with the King James. It's an excellent version, and sometimes I prefer it. But this is the verse that, unfortunately, the King James uh, translators put the Spirit itself intercedes for us. And, of course, we talked about the fact it's a pronoun there. It's a male pronoun. But the emphasis of this verse (coughs) is that he intercedes for us. The way the Spirit helps meet our need is described by the general word helps. It means he puts his hand to the work along with us. The one thing we can be assured of is this, the groanings that it talks about here. They're according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is shown in Scripture to be a person. That was a lengthy portion, but... (coughs) Because there are groups that do not believe in the Trinity, do not believe in the Holy Spirit as a person, we took 
a good deal of time to talk about that. Now, not only is he a person, but he is God. Okay, it's one thing to grant him personality. All right, he's a person, but he is actually deity. And this, of course, again, is something to uh, defend the Trinity. He has the attributes of deity. These attributes that we think most often of the Father is also shared by the Son and the Spirit. So let's take a look at a number of these. First of all, he's omnipresent. The Spirit is everywhere. Where shall I go from your Spirit? A rhetorical question. Obviously, nowhere. <clears throat> or where shall I flee from your presence? I can't. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Where shall I go from your spirit? Here, the spirit is being emphasized as the omnipresent one. He's not bound by the laws of nature that govern matter. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Here in Hebrews 9.14, you'll see that associated with the Spirit. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's called there the eternal Spirit. He is truth. 1 John 5.6 And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, even to the point of being able to grant life. And you see here, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. It's interesting, breath, wind, spirit, they're all the same Greek word. And so it's, it's almost, uh, well, this is, of course, would be Hebrew Old Testament. But it's interesting that breath, wind, spirit are all associated together in the Bible. The spirit of God has made me the breath of the Almighty. The spirit of the Almighty gives me life. And then he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Here in Isaiah 40. Again, kind of rhetorical questions from Isaiah. Who has measured, or probably better for modern readers, who's directed the Spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and made him understand? And of course, the answer in every case is no one. The Spirit is omniscient. He needs no man to counsel him. He needs no man to show him truth. And then there are statements of deity in the scripture that indicate that uh, the Holy Spirit is deity. Here's a real good one. I like this a lot. Uh, Peter just flows seamlessly in this passage to talking about the Holy Spirit <coughs> to then talking about God. Let's read this together and, and notice how Peter just ties this together well. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And he says first, to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? <clears throat> why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now he concludes this with another question. You have not lied to man, but to God. So he begins by calling it a lie to the Spirit, by the end of the passage, he's calling it a lie to God, simply indicating that the Spirit is deity. And then, of course, we have all kinds of uh, verses that tie together the three uh, into one verse, which would indicate this. Here's one, then we'll turn to another one. In fact, I, I may ask you another. I think maybe you can pull one out in a minute. Here's one from 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, one, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So it's Paul's benediction. That's the last verse in 2 Corinthians. And he's asking a benediction of the Trinity. 
May the grace of God, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You've probably learned some uh, verses before that tie the three together. Can you think of an instance in the New Testament where all three are present in a verse or in a couple of verses? Good, there you go. Uh, In the uh, baptism, we find that the Lord Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. We find the Spirit descending like a a dove and lighting upon him. And then we hear the voice, the Father calling out, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we have all three united there. We also have it at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Let's turn there. We usually... Uh, turn here for a different purpose, but uh, the end of Matthew, chapter 28, and it's the next to the last verse, 19, Matthew 28, 19, and what we have here is uh, words from the Lord Jesus. We use it kind of a spreading the gospel and energizing people to go out and witness. But notice 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and now baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you have a number of references in the New Testament that makes it clear that the scripture writers considered the Holy Spirit to be part of the Trinity. He is indeed deity. Okay, I guess we're on Roman numeral three, right? The work of the Holy Spirit, things that he has done or is doing that would demonstrate that he is God. We have uh, the act of creation. I've got actually three verses here. Let's look at these two and then I'll show you the third one on another screen. Psalm 104, when you send forth your spirit, they're created. And you renew the face of the ground. You can see how that's talking about generating life. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me talk about this Genesis 1-2 for a moment. The idea of the Spirit hovering. The verb there, this time it's Hebrew in the Old Testament. The verb there, hovering, is used again over in Deuteronomy, and it's talking about what an eagle does as it hovers over and protects its young. And so what we can gather out of that is that what Moses is describing here in Genesis is that the Spirit was hovering over, protecting, participating in the creative activity. Notice creation's not done here, okay? It's Darkness, it's without form and void. It's not complete yet. The Father is the one who planned creation. The Son effected it. It says clearly in Colossians, and by him were all things created. But it's the Spirit who does the completing work, it seems. And so he is part of the act of creation. And then when it comes to man, we see it probably more clearly than that. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And that, of course, is plural, as we have the Father, Son, and Spirit, all three participating in the creation of man. And so we find that the Holy Spirit is certainly a participant in the act of creation. He's involved in the act of inspiration, This is a famous verse, one of two that people turn to to show that the scriptures are inspired of God. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The idea of carried along there is used in the book of Acts When Paul was uh, on the ship going to Rome, the great storm came up. They could no longer control the ship. They actually let go the rudder. 
and they were driven along. And that's the same word here. Men of God were driven along by the Holy Spirit. They were not robots, but at the same time, God superintended that they would choose every Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek word exactly as he determined. And yet at the same time, somehow using the personality. How did that work? I have no idea. (laughs) But that is what we find in Scripture. The Holy Spirit drove men along, carried them along as they were producing the scriptures. The Holy Spirit was involved in the act of, excuse me, begetting. See, am I messing up here? There it is. Luke 135. Uh, This is Gabriel speaking to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is a supernatural creative act. It's beyond any human comprehension. Here's another one. We can't crack the egg here. We have no idea how this was done. But somehow the Spirit would generate life in her womb. The child would not only be her physical son, man, but would also be the Son of God truly deity. So the spirit was involved in the act of begetting the Savior. He's involved in the act of convicting unbelievers of sin. This is the upper room discourse, Jesus speaking, and when he, the spirit, comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's three parts to this then. He convicts the unredeemed of their sin, exposing them to the reality of their condition. No one is going to respond unless God responds first. And the spirit has to bring a conviction of sin. Normally, how does he do that? Through the word. Two, he convicts unbelievers of righteousness. He confronts them with the fact that God is perfectly holy and that Christ has a perfect righteousness that they don't have, and they can't get any other way. And then he also convicts sinners of the consequences of judgment, and he proves that judgment is just and it's necessary. By warning believers of the reality of a future judgment, that's a gracious work of the Spirit. It alerts them to the awful truth that awaits them if they don't repent. Another work of the Holy Spirit is in the act of regeneration. This is one I shared last week under a different heading, under salvation. What is regeneration? It's the act of God which effects the new birth. It brings the believer a new nature. It's a transformation of that person's nature. The believer is given new life. He's cleansed and separated from sin. It means to be born again, as this verse talks about, or born from above. In order to be saved, you have to experience a new beginning of heavenly origin. You have to be radically transformed. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, Peter adds this. We don't use this verse as often, but so plain. Who, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, regenerated, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Holy Spirit is the power behind the preaching of the gospel, and he uses his words then to draw sinners to the Savior and to regenerate them. Then we have, uh, I think I need to skip that. We have the act of bestowing spiritual gifts, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to let you go to MacArthur's outline for that. I'm getting caught a little bit on time, so I think I'm going to go on down to terminology because I, I want to hit all four of these points. They're very important because sometimes people get confused <clears throat> over these. I want to talk about the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit. So... Wow, okay, I've got 15 minutes. 
to knock that off. Let's start with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit were we all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Pastor Farrell was hitting this hard this morning, and he talked about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's not water baptism that's being talked about here. It's a five-letter word beginning with you. What is it? Hmm? Union. Union. Yeah, he talked about that a lot this morning. The union with Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is a one-time act. The believer is placed into the body of Christ, which is the church. We're all members if saved of one body, the universal church. It's not an experience that follows salvation. That's why we have to emphasize this. All true believers were baptized by the Spirit at conversion. All right? One time, the moment you're saved, you're baptized into the Holy Spirit. Because it means a union, a joining with Christ. It's not associated with the modern tongue movement. Uh, There are passages that they'll try to use and people can get confused with. I'll try to tell you a quick story. Again, Philip going up to Samaria, okay? Uh, He preaches the gospel. Many people are saved. They get water baptized. They join the church there in Samaria. They do not receive the Holy Spirit yet, though. They are not baptized by the Spirit. And so people say, aha, there you go. Baptism is something you experience later. When were they baptized by the Spirit? Peter and John heard about this in Jerusalem, came up to Samaria, confirmed these conversions, and then the Spirit fell upon them. And so what we have to be careful of here, like in Acts 8, is something, a couple of words will be very helpful to you. Be careful in Acts. Sometimes the book of Acts is a narrative. We call it It's descriptive, not prescriptive. That's a little phrase you can remember. Descriptive, not prescriptive. By descriptive, we mean a narrative. It means it simply tells what happened in the life of the early church. This is is a fact. This is how it happened. The Holy Spirit came later to these folks. But it's not prescriptive. It doesn't mean that this chapter is telling us what the church today should do. Now, what is the logical explanation of that? Remember, the church has just started, and the church is composed of what? All Jews. Samaritans are half-breeds. And so this is opening a new door. And for confirmation that God has granted salvation to others, the apostles came up, and by their laying on of hands, they received uh, the Holy Spirit. It happened later with Gentiles when they were introduced. It happened later in Acts uh, with some Old Testament followers of John. They'd been baptized with John by John's baptism of repentance, but they didn't even know about Christ. And so there are times in Acts in the early days when this was necessary to verify, yes, God's opening the door to Samaritans, Gentiles, Uh, those that are John's followers, anyone who names the name of Christ is a true believer. And so it was for a purpose, a purpose that's no longer necessary. I mean, what is there besides Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles? That's all of us, right? And so Acts sometimes is descriptive, not prescriptive. Be careful of that. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, one time, at conversion. It's a union with Christ. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This brings the presence of God into the life of the believer. At salvation, the Holy Spirit not only regenerates the sinner and imparts saving faith, but he permanently resides in the new believer. Again, all believers are indwelt with the Spirit. It's a gift from God. We do not pray to be baptized And we don't pray to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, he dwells with you, but now a new thing's going to happen when Christ leaves. He will be in you. He's going to indwell believers. <clears throat> he's, a, excuse me, he's a permanent resident in every believer's heart. So these first two, we want to be careful. They are acts that occur immediately salvation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, thirdly, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 1.13, I'm just going to read for some time here. If you can turn quickly, that's fine, but I'm going to read it. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This sealing, which Paul talks about, remember Paul lived in the Roman world, and seals in that day marked official documents or made it authoritative. And so it recognized security, ownership, authenticity, and authority on a document. Likewise, the Holy Spirit being the seal. Notice, God is the sealer, in a sense, the Father. The Holy Spirit is literally the seal. He is the mark of identification and authenticity. It's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That comes from 2 Corinthians 1. And then finally, we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to go ahead and turn there, even though we're going to have a slide for it, and I'll, uh, I'll explain in a moment why. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not like the other two. It's not like the baptism or the indwelling. The filling of the Spirit is something different. This is not something you get zapped with at salvation, okay? Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What's a characteristic when you're drunk? You lose control. You lose your self-control. Paul says, don't lose your self-control. Don't go nutso, okay? Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Notice that's a command. See, that's not something you receive at salvation. It's something that you receive as you yield to the Holy Spirit. You can be filled with him. It's not a zap. It's definitely not speaking in tongues, but rather it's something that comes through a believer's yieldedness to God. Now the question, how do you, how do you get filled then? All right, here's where I can help you see something. I've got Colossians 3.16 up here, and I've called it a parallel to Ephesians 5.18, and you will not see that by looking at these. We're going to have to turn to those two passages, and I'll show you where I get this. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. All right, I'm saying that these two things belong together. Let me show you how. Go to Ephesians 5, and we want to look at the verse after the one we read. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 is our verse. And then drop to 19. <clears throat> Ephesians five nineteen. Okay, what happens after filled with the Spirit? What does Paul go on to say? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and remember some of that wording, okay? <clears throat> now go to Colossians 3, and you're going to find that we're going to pick up the same thought line precisely. In fact, I actually only quoted the first half of 3.16. Let's look at the second half of 3.16. Look how close this is to Ephesians 5. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's exactly what Ephesians 5 said. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. That was there. And whatever you do in word or deed, 
do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, what is being filled with the Spirit? It's letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's that simple. As you yield to the Spirit, as you read his word, obey his word, that's how a believer is filled with the Spirit. And that leads to psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in your heart, giving thanks to God. All of that follows. By the way, you may have heard this preached or taught before. These two books are very similar in many respects. Ephesians and Colossians have a lot of passages that are very similar to each other. So it's not surprising that we might find such a thing as that even here. All right, we're about ready to wrap up. We're going to get done before I thought. Uh, Got a quote. I I can't remember who I got this one from, but uh, this is a really good quote, and it should encourage our hearts. God is not far off. In the Holy Spirit, the triune God comes close, so close as to actually enter into each believer. God in you. He is more intimate with us now than in the incarnation. And we don't think that way using, you know, when Christ came in bodily form, you would think, you know, that is the reality. That's the big deal. But through the operation of the Holy Spirit, he has truly now become Emmanuel because he's literally God with us. The Holy Spirit is with us and in us where Christ, of course, has returned to the Father for this time. Elizabeth Charles wrote a hymn called Praise Ye the Father. This is the third verse. It's short. Praise ye the Spirit, comforter of Israel, sent of the Father and of the Son to bless us. Praise ye the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise ye the triune God. And then one final quote. We do not need to have more of him. We have all there is. That's what some groups claim. I want more of the Spirit. We have no need to have more of him. What we need is to know more of him. We need to understand who he is and his role in the Trinity. All right. Well, thank you for your good attention tonight. That is it. We'll pray and I'll let you go. Thank you, Lord, for uh, our lesson time. Uh, I know in many respects, because I know all these folks, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm thankful that they understand your word, love your word, have the spirit within them, and are trying to walk with you and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray that that would be our heart's desire. I pray, as uh, Pastor Farrell talked about today, We still can sin, but we're not going to go on sinning. We're not going to return to that. Not if we actually have the Spirit dwelling in us. You'll not allow it. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you're going to chastise us. You're going to correct us with the word if we stumble and do not follow you. So we thank you that we have uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Bless these folks as they go home. Give us safety. Bless this coming uh, week, for many of them a work week, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.